Welcome back, everyone. I'm happy to bring you another episode of More Than Work. Some weeks, it's harder to get this thing out than others, though, I'll tell you, uh, just based on what I have going on. And I'm sure everyone can relate to that, that you have things you like to do and you want to do, and they're important to you. But for me, this week, work's been really hard. And I've just kind of had one of those weeks where I actually last night took a break just to stop and cook and make a new recipe and just be comforted by the routine of cooking and what it involves and the cleanup and measuring and everything making sense. And it actually turned out well. I tried to make hummus myself for the first time. I guess I don't know. Is that really cooking? I mean, you're not really cooking anything, but I did have to cook lentils. So I think that counts. But yeah, I'm just wondering, anyone else, do you guys just have routines or have practices that comfort you when things aren't going well in some other area? Today's a little bit better. By next week, everything will be great, I think, but it's been one of those weeks. So one highlight, though, was editing this podcast. Nikita Ren Thigpen, she's my guest. We, we had a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun with some guests lately and uh, just laughing a lot and cracking up. And I don't know if people find that annoying to listen to. I hope they're, that makes people laugh too. I think if you can share a laugh with some people, even if it's, it's through some recording, that's great. We talked about some serious stuff, but then we also just talked about some fun things. And she talked a little bit about with mental health because she's a licensed social worker just with the whole idea of the diagnoses and labeling of people. And I've talked to friends about that, about just how a label a label can sometimes make you feel like you belong to a certain group or in a certain area of treatment or certain things about you are so quote-unquote normalized because you have a label. But sometimes labels can really affect people. And I think that I liked her stance on that and labeling people and how diagnoses work and it was it was really interesting and I think some people might relate to that part and then I just liked how she talked about her family a lot she said you know her daughter basically advocated for herself against her and it reminded me of when Brene Brown talks about her kids and sometimes like she's taught them to be these resilient incredible people but part of that is they're gonna call you out (laughs) so if you raise kids that are amazing in that way and really with these certain values, they're going to call you out as a parent. That has to be kind of funny. I mean, I don't have kids, but I think I'm someone who's called my parents out before. (laughs) So I don't know. I think if it, it was just fun to listen to her talk about that and talk about the family she came from and how she came from a family that just worked hard and everyone has multiple jobs. And I've definitely experienced some of that too. And so we just really related on different things in different ways, but She also talks about practical ways she like builds in time to relax. She's a coach. And even in her programs, she said, and I don't want to give away the whole interview, but like the fourth week of every month, she has everyone take the time off. And sometimes I think about that with the podcast. Every once in a while, I'll take a week off and it's just a time to reset, to come back stronger and and do better. So I think this week, I just, I want to tell people that it's okay to relax. It's okay to take a break. It's okay to stop what you're doing and just step away. I'm going to step away this evening, actually. No one knows what evening this is. Probably it's the night before this episode drops, but I'm going to step away too. And I just think it's important to give yourself space and self-care is important and it's selfish, but sometimes you need to be selfish. 
So I just hope everyone's well. We're halfway through the summer. Last summer was so much different than this one. And this is a fun interview to listen to. Again, if you guys know, you have an idea of someone I should interview, someone I should be aware of, just let me know. I appreciate the follows. I appreciate the likes on posts. I appreciate if you can give me some feedback. So far, no one really does other than friends who I ask and force to give feedback. But yeah, feel free to reach out, morethanworkpod at gmail.com. So here we go. Welcome to More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. Here we go. All right, everyone. Today, I have someone who I'm really excited to talk to. We've been waiting to do this for a little while, and she's a really cool woman who is really helping promote just other women and, and their success. So it's Nikita R. Thigpen. She's the number one balance and relationship advisor in the world. How's it going, Nikita? I am wonderful. Thanks for having me, Rabia. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit to the More Than Work audience? Yeah, so I'll do it a little bit backwards than how I normally do it. I normally start with where I came from and how I got here and then lead you to what I'm doing now. But since so much of it is intermeshed, I think I just made that word up. We're going to call it a Nikitaism real quick. Um, <laughs> since it's so much intermeshed, I'll just say what I'm doing today in mm-hmm. 2021. So currently, I own a global personal development company where I'm helping power couples who are achieving wild success in their businesses create that wonderful joy, success, and passion from the bedroom through the boardroom of their lives without losing any more of their personal freedom. My husband and I both own the company. He will be happy to tell you that he works on the business as 49% shareholder. He is not in the business. He is not about this couple life stuff with getting Mm -hmm. into the nitty gritty, but he's been tremendously helpful for us with so many parts of the business, mainly to make sure that I stay in line with being impactful with the fiscal responsibility to the company, as well as the impact that we're creating with the couples across the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's always the the thing that's like in a way difficult about business because you have all these things you want to do and ways you could help people, but you have to find a way to make money doing them too. Absolutely. And not get burnt out, right? Like Mm -hmm. the whole purpose of your podcast, more than work, like don't get into a space where you're just doing work and you're not living life and you're not able to really enjoy the process of your journey, which is Mm -hmm. quintessentially what I'm helping them do, as well as, you know, turn up those fires and ignite that passion in the bedroom. That's a very you know, playful and fun part of what I do, but it's not the only part that I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'd be a different job, maybe. (laughs) We'll get back to that, because I definitely want to hear more about just all you're doing, especially with the couple's work. You started out as a social worker, right? So not doing this work. 
Yeah. yeah. And it was it's a, a yes and in parentheses, A-N-D, for those of you who think I talk funny, because I do, um, <laughs> as you're listening to this. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker still. I'll be that to the day I die. I paid too much in energy and sweat equity and money to let that license <laughs> you know, go to the wayside. <laughs> I don't serve as a psychotherapist and trauma specialist in the same way that I did when I was really in the medical clinical social work world, the psychiatric social work world, the justice system of the psychiatric clinical social work world. Like I was tied to all those specifically because the seat of my experience is as a trauma informed Mm. practitioner. What I discovered though, in the midst of, of working that world for 20 some years is I really loved what I did. I was really good at what I was doing, but I wasn't in love with it. Mm -hmm. anymore. And I realized that part of that falling out of love with the work that I was so passionate about was because I felt limited um, and constricted in the way that I could work as a psychotherapist and a clinician who was specifically in the trauma-informed realm. And I was working with families and building stronger families from that area of my life too, but in a very different way. Like I was kind of held to just the clinical and resource level of that work. Once I started to infuse modern coaching modalities like breakthrough success coaching into the work that I do now and seeing that those tools with my clinical tools, with the trauma tools, with the sexology tools, like all the other things that I would eventually layer onto that, that made me feel more whole and polished and refined on so many levels of the work that I did because I was able to not just help someone get off the floor surviving their grieving or their circumstances of their trauma, but I could help them thrive in their life and really Mm -hmm. have fun and and enjoy dreaming and believing again and not just trying to push through every day. Mm -hmm. Well, and yeah, and I guess it's that whole part, the after part, right? Because if you got someone to a certain point, you were as a social worker, you kind of step back and let like go. So you can't see things through. Yeah. And you're you're honestly, from an insurance perspective, you know, talk about fiscal responsibility, you're limited, especially when you work in systems. Like when you work, you're taking actual health insurance for the mental health insurance portion of someone's insurance. You have to give a diagnosis. That's how you get paid. And sometimes the DSM-5 diagnoses mm-hmm. didn't fit in what was going on. And you didn't want to have to push someone in a box just to make sure that everyone got paid in that hospital system or that you know child care advocate system or whatever system I might have been working in at the time. Sometimes people just need a little bit of space to mm-hmm. back up and grieve who they were because they're stepping fully into who they're becoming. And there's a little bit of a disconnect in that space. It doesn't mean I have to give them a diagnosis as bipolar disorder because of the way that they're managing it. But working in the system, you Mm -hmm. had to pick something, pick something that's the closest fit and then be willing to give treatment plans and all that for it. And some of those things honestly just didn't fit. And I didn't feel good pushing people into uh, a box for the DSM-5 or for ICD-9 based on, you know, whether it's medical or traditional therapy that you're Mm -hmm. doing, I wanted to be able to choose what was the best fit so I could give the treatment plan for lack of a better phrase. Nowadays, I don't necessarily have people on my virtual because, you know, we're all virtual these days. I don't have them on my virtual couch in that same way, but I am heavy in the trauma informed care because what I've realized Mm -hmm. for a lot of our power couples and those married women entrepreneurs that I serve There's a lot of inner child healing that has to be done. Most of the time, they're unaware of it. 
They mm-hmm. typically don't come like, oh, yeah, I know I have XYZ issue, even though many of them have had therapy before. Many of them have had and still do have coaches, sales coaches, business coaches, leadership coaches, you know, all the different things. Mm-hmm. They've never come across someone like me who's a balance and relationship advisor that's really pulling from her bag of techniques that actually apply to whatever their specific issue is that's driving their adult decisions now and mm-hmm. kind of limiting their life the same way I was limiting my life by feeling like I needed to stay in a box as being a clinical social worker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think just from the diagnosis perspective, I mean, I've gone through therapy and I don't mind people knowing that. And I still go to a therapist, but one, my more recent one just said about a past diagnosis, she just told me, she goes, look, I don't know if that's the correct diagnosis for you. But what I do know is I don't think that anything changes about what you're doing now. So it's just you, it's almost like you're going to be stuck with that then, like thinking (laughs) of yourself as that. I mean, that's what happens with some of the diagnosis too. Then, well, I am this thing then. So in a way it's better not to get that sometimes if you can find a way through and, and to thrive outside of that or, or use parts of it that are good and parts that are bad in different ways, you know? Yeah, no, I thousand percent agree. I just had this conversation with my eldest uh, son, who's almost 25, and he made my husband and I grandparents. We have two and three-year-old little grandbabies we're super excited about. Um, And our oldest grandbaby that just turned three was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. One of the challenges, granted, in addition to what that looks like in terms of her treatment and her care and, and helping her understand the world and helping us understand the world the way she sees it, which is a very brilliant way, right? The conversation my husband and I were having with my son is the label will just help people communicate a little bit easier and to understand why, you know, our baby communicates or our grandbaby, I keep calling her my baby, but Mm -hmm. she really is my baby, but, you know, communicates Mm -hmm. in a different way or shares. She doesn't give the greatest eye contact unless she is fixated on something. And some of those other, what some would consider awkward social cues Mm -hmm. that can make people uncomfortable. Having the label of uh, being a person with ASD is helpful when someone's not being ignorant, right? Like when they're mm-hmm. actually, and even if they don't know a lot about autism, when they're informed enough to know it's a different way of seeing the world, it's helpful, but we're not going to put her in a box where she is her disorder mm-hmm. and then gets limited by that. As far as I'm concerned, she can be president of the United States. She can take over a country, right? Like she can be the greatest pianist the world has ever seen. She can do mm-hmm. anything as long as we don't put her in a box because the world mm-hmm. is already going to do that. So I do think to your point, the labels can help you just understand and with context to the time that you're in mm-hmm. in the moment, even if it is a clinical label like ASD or uh, borderline personality disorder or major depressive disorder or general anxiety disorder or whatever the label may be for so many of us that have labels for different things that are going on in our life. Some of them are just captured brackets of symptoms that we're having in that mm-hmm. moment. It doesn't mean that we necessarily are going to embody that for the rest of our life. It also doesn't mean that it's a bad thing if we do. We just have to learn yeah. how to navigate whatever those particular challenges might arise because of that uh, metabolic or chemical imbalance that's going on with us at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so it's really cool that then you bring that kind of evolved view into your own practice now. So I think you having the mindset that these things are are possibly temporary or things you work with, then you can help people transform too and deal with them, right? 
rather than, Ab- yeah, you know, worrying about, oh, if I don't, if they don't stay this way, then I can't, you know, I'm not going to get insurance money from them. I mean, that's part of the thing, right? Like, unfortunately, basic, yeah. yeah, no, a thousand percent. And it just, it wasn't in line with my core belief system in the way it was mm-hmm. when I was super excited in my twenties, when, you know, I kind of started on this journey and and the work itself, I'm still very aligned to it. Again, I hold the banner LCSW all the live long day. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of other alphabet soup that I don't use because it doesn't quite serve me in the way that it did when I was in those other systems for the work that I do these days. But if I need to you know, bone up or polish something, I sure enough will take eight hours CEU or get into a boot camp intensive on something to better understand yeah. But now my reason for doing it is really for the purpose of serving the community that brings the best challenge out of me so that I can serve them best versus me having like a a really wide toolkit to be able to manage any fire that's brought my way, which is kind of how you're trained as as a clinical social worker. You got to handle all the fires. Like I literally was groomed in the emergency room. There was everything under the sun came through there from little kids that were sexual abused to teenagers with STIs and, you know, old school term of STDs all the way through grown, grown people having, you know, medical illnesses that you haven't ever seen in this type of country. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. so I've seen everything from crisis to the longer term care bereavement and all the other spaces and stages of work that I've done in my life that prepared me to not be surprised by anything. Mm -hmm. I'm literally never shocked. The only shock or surprise I might show for anything that comes my way is, is the timing of something like, Oh, hmm, I didn't think the full moon was going to happen today. I knew it was coming, (laughs) but I didn't know it was coming today. Um, Or someone's attitude or energy may show me like, oh, wow, I thought we were going to have a little bit more time before you told on yourself and showed me who you were. But I'm not surprised at what you showed me. So it definitely helped me become um, humble and Mm -hmm. very well-rounded in expecting the unexpected, but not holding people to any expectation that I've created in my mind about who they are based on whatever issues I might have as someone who's a multi-trauma survivor myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just think, I mean, that work, I don't know. I have such respect for people who, who do that kind of work and who almost give people in a way their humanity back to them when they it's been taken and, and treat them in a humane way. So I guess before we get to like how you made this switch Mm -hmm. or maybe Let's see. We'll see where this goes. Like, I'm not (laughs) sure exactly how to do it. But I want to talk to you about how it was affecting your life and even your relationships when you were working still as a licensed clinical social worker. And then what kind of made you just say, okay, you know what, I'm going to actually transition and work with just people in a different way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And your podcast is the perfect place to do it. Because I will say I was all work and very little Nikita Mm -hmm. back then. So we're talking like early 2000s. I started my company 2011. So it's we just hit the 10 year mark. So 10 years prior to this. Thank you. Maraca shaking. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 10 years prior to this, it was a minimum of three jobs 
simultaneously. I was work, work, and more work versus more than work, right? Like pun intended for the show. Plus I was working on my doctorate at the time. Prior to that, obviously the master's certifications are between a triple bachelor's degree, like all the things. I was like, let's get this. Not knowing that I had an addiction and work was serving me fully serving all of the addiction because you're talking 12, 14, 16 hour days minimum at one job in the hospital, not including including all the other things that you're doing and the graveyard shifts and the nighttime and, and working as sexual assault response unit who can get a call at three in the morning to run into the hospital to see the most devastating things, not even including all of that. I was in a high stressful condition, body condition and mental condition all the time. And it was exhausting, but it was also feeding me, right? I, my mm-hmm. addiction wasn't drugs or promiscuity or, or I don't know, too much chocolate or whatever, although I do like chocolate, so no <laughs> judgment there. But that wasn't my addiction. Mine was stress. Those dopamine and adrenaline hits were everything for me. They were not everything for my family, right? My, my kids are young adults now, or almost mid-level adult now for the oldest being 25. But my kids were young. My my oldest literally was born in school with me, right? Like from the beginning of time, he's not known me to not have school plus multiple jobs. My daughter's a little bit younger. She's 20. So she had a little bit of a calm window when I was on bed rest while pregnant with her, right? Like, But that was... <laughs> That was medically induced. So I didn't really have a choice there. What I realized was in my clinical, in my straight clinical social work days, when that's all I did in whichever job I did it at, what was happening for me is I was missing moments. I was missing so many of the moments that I was working so hard for that my husband and I were both working so hard for. And we were doing all the things. We had the kids in every activity you can think of, the soccer, the football, the hip hop, the jazz, the ballet. Like we did all the things by schedule and agenda, but we weren't fully present for those moments. Because when, you know, my daughter called me out, she was somewhere around eight or nine years old, I think. And she Mm -hmm. called me out and straight said, you are awesome but you are awesome for everyone except for me. Mm. Now, the the black mama in me had a whole lot to say to that um, in 2.2 seconds. Like, who are you talking to? What? But I didn't. <laughs> I called myself <laughs> in that moment to really listen to, like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And, you know, there was a little defensive behavior for me. I asked her, like, what do you mean? I drive you here. I take you here, right? Like, I was running down the list. Like, I was, you know, really in a battle with my young child. But she broke it down right back with me because I taught her one good thing that we did is we taught both of our kids to be advocates for themselves. We just Mm. didn't expect them to advocate against us. But she told me, she's like, yeah, you're in the dance class, but you're not with the other moms watching me. You're on your computer or you got a notebook out. When we're taking 45 minute drives into the city every single day so I could drive her to school, by the way, because my husband was going in the opposite direction. She's like, you're on the phone. You're talking to people. You're not talking to me. And she was right. She called me out on mm-hmm. basically every justified excuse that I could bring for like all the things that I was doing for my family. She was hitting me back with like, yeah, and you're not present. Yeah, daddy helps, helps me with homework. Daddy's the one with the patience. Mm-hmm. You're always the one running. And although there's benefits, this is not a discouragement for anyone listening to this that have divided up responsibility in your home. If you happen to have children or elder care responsibilities, you should divide that up when you can. But you also want to be mindful of the 
the moments that you're creating with people, you need to be present. And I wasn't. I'm the first partaker of so many of those lessons that I've now packaged up and a really sweet blueprint to help other people avoid. I was not doing the thing correctly. I was letting work take over my life. Those hours, those days, we were never driven by money. We were really just trying to survive ourselves. Because if you know anything about social work, you know that you don't get paid a lot of money, right? Like with, with all of that. But I was also really not living what I was teaching other people. So I'm in a space now in 2021 where I can say I'm fully living the life that I teach, preach, and sell to other people. But I wasn't back then. As a psychotherapist and trauma specialist who was doing all the things and getting all the certifications and all the alphabet soup that we're not even going to talk about here, Mm -hmm. all that I was doing and helping people get resources and have better coping skills and manage their time schedules better, I wasn't doing. And I felt this misalignment with the truth, the truth of what I'm teaching people and the know-how, you know how people say, Mm -hmm. oh, I already know that, Nikita, I already know. I was one of those people too, Rabia. I already knew, but I wasn't implementing. I wasn't executing the things. And that felt like I was being a fraud, (laughs) right? Like I really, and and not to anyone in the world, because no one in the world would know, but I felt like there was misalignment and I wanted more. I really honestly didn't know how to get it. I didn't know where to start. I had convinced myself that what I wanted was to open up my own private practice and that would be enough. And I realized that it, you know, that was built off of the theory of having to deal with insurance companies or fee for service mm-hmm. and then getting trapped into that, you know, trading time for dollars thing. And I did not want to do that. So I prayed. I'm a spiritual woman. I'm a minister. Mm-hmm. I prayed and asked God, show me what you want me to do. Like I was very clear in how much I begged for clarity. And he did just that. God showed me what he wanted me to do. He showed me this huge vision of a self-care institute of sorts, which we now call the Big Pro Balance and Relationship Management Institute. I did not ask how to get there. <laughs> which is, you know, a lesson learned. I asked the what, which was was clear. I did not ask the how. And I think part of that was my ego. Honestly, Rabia, I thought that I could just figure it out myself. Yeah. So my first endeavor into entrepreneurship when we started in 2011 was failed. When my husband and I jumped off that cliff, we lost $100,000 in about six and a half months really fast. Mm. We had a brick and mortar that was a staffing agency with a professional development arm. Great intention, 68 page tight business plan that we had other people and other companies and consultants review like, this is amazing. And it was not made for us because we are entrepreneurs. And so Mm. it clearly wasn't made for us. But being the research whore that I am, I was able to really convince even the experts that this was great. The, the thing that was missing for me was being honest with what mm-hmm. I wanted to do. So it took me to hire coaches, to be honest, mentors, being very connected in my faith the way I needed to be more than usual, having pushed through those really difficult punches of failure one after another, the money being drained, my marriage being shaky, because he's looking at me like mm, something right about this picture that you convinced me <laughs> to, mm-hmm. you know, pay yeah. with you. 
all of that was hard. And I was hit with medical issues around that time that actually started a little bit before, but got exacerbated because of all that stress. I was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune that, again, was already formulating before then. We were just kind of ignoring the signs, being busy. But like all of that stuff was hitting us that first couple of years in business. And it was not pretty yet. I was convinced that this is where I was supposed to be as long as I could be more honest with myself. And it just took me to, to really do the work. Right. Well, and, and just that kind of blow, I mean, it would make you doubt and it would make you go, oh, okay. But there's also that idea that you're kind of showing the what and not the how anyway, even if you hadn't I don't think if you have it, you had asked, I don't think you would have been given exactly. Your <laughs> probably <you> probably <laughs> No. So, I mean, I'm even like listening to you talk about just how, it was a strain on, on your relationship. And now part of your focus is relationships and it yeah. wouldn't have been with that. Do you think that, that those lessons were necessary though painful? Like, do, do you feel like they were necessary? Cause I think that happens to a lot of us. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I totally do. I'm the kid and I've always been the kid that touches the stove, even when the parent says it's hot Mm-hmm. And I'm like, whatever, chick, and I'll touch it again until it's <laughs> hot enough for me, right? Like, you know, when I feel like I've received the lesson, <laughs> then right. I'll stop touching it. That heat wasn't hot enough the first time. I'm going in, planting my hand and putting a pot on top of it just to prove, one, that I'm tough enough to do it. So I had that mentality happening. And part of that was a survival uh, technique that I had to use to be able to navigate all of the trauma that I, you know, was forced to grow up through in my earlier life. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, tough wins, sensitive doesn't. So I had to like force myself to be in there. It was also really looking at what was my true mission. So my mission ironically has never changed, even from being a psychotherapist and a trauma specialist specifically my mission has always been to build stronger families. When we Mm -hmm. opened up the staffing agency and professional development arm, my mission was still to build stronger families. My angle was, you know, hey, finance is the number one thing that ruins marriages, right? Like if I can make sure people got money, feel confident, have skills, which was the professional development arm of it to like build them up and empower them. If I can do that, I'm helping families, not like, Mm -hmm. so that was like my mentality about it. Obviously the trauma part speaks for itself. What I wasn't really being honest with though, is I thought I had to do it in some kind of way that would be accepted by the world, right? I mean, how dope is it to be like, yeah, black woman owned staffing agency and professional Mm -hmm. development company. Like that is a complete white man's world. That is very unheard of. There are more women coming into the space now, but that definitely... Not back then. Yeah. And it's it's still not a normal, right? It's it's still not like a huge thing. So I had a lot of seeking validation from the world who had never validated me when I was doing what I'm really good at and what I really love to do. And it was this constant battle because the reality is, you know, take away the licenses, Rabia, take certifications, take away all the degrees. I've not changed in my core essence of my gift. Mm -hmm. My gift got sharper and more polished with me going to school and, you know, being educated and blah, blah, blah. But I could have done it in a different way. And I would still be as what I think as amazing as I'm right now. Right. Like with all the lessons Uh that I had to get sharpened through all those painful experiences. My core gift is exhortation. My gift is lifting people up. That is all it is. And it's come in different 
you know, windows of ways to access being able to have the privilege of having someone open up enough to me to be vulnerable enough in their mm-hmm. strength and share so that I can truly empower them and exhort them. But that's my gift. I just happen to go the clinical social work route and psychology route and sexology route and trauma right. route and all those things to to do it. But I also, when I leaned into that staffing agency part and again had convinced myself, convinced my husband, convinced the Wharton consultants, convinced, you know, all the people like, this is so amazing and started to drink my own Kool-Aid that I made for them to drink and started thinking. What I realized is I was pulling myself away from my mission to build Mm -hmm. stronger families. I was getting so caught up in how to make this work that I was being pulled away. Like I was getting caught in the tactics is the best way to say that and was really you know, being pulled away from the whole mission in the in the first place. So yeah. So then, how did you get out of that? You Ooh. said you talked to coaches, talked to different people, but yeah. how'd you how'd you get to the vision you're at now? That was some some serious tears there. I in in addition to paying for coaching and going to VIP intensives and conferences Mm -hmm. and doing the whole, I don't even know if coaches still offer these things now, but the inner circle coaching, like you've probably seen some of those, like the membership and you like Mm -hmm. get access to the self-paced everything. And then you get like one call a month with them, right? With 500 other people on the line, by the way, you know, know, how nice, right? Like, you know, this is, this is as personal as I could afford at that time, especially after losing so much money. Yeah. Um, mixing, doing that work with honestly laying prostrate and really turning, surrendering beyond my ego, not letting my mm-hmm. ego drive me, which it was, you know, you, when you are feeling attacked, you start leaning into the part of you that protects you, which is your ego. And yep. it's there to protect you. And ooh, I was leaning heavy because I had my husband on one side, you know, my, my sanctuary at home. My husband was like, nah, 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 right? Like, yeah. you know, in the air, the kids are like, well, why can't we have these things? You got all these jobs. Why are you telling me no? And I'm like, y'all have no idea <laughs> like what right. we're doing. And then, of course, I had the lack of clients and we had team. We actually had W-2 employees that we had to pay in the brick and mortar office location that we were renting and paying a grip for that we did not need. So that was part one of ego issue. We didn't need all those things, but I thought we needed it. So we had crazy overhead, like all of that stuff was very humbling because it got to the point, Rabia, where my husband's check would go, would deposit at 7 a.m. on a Friday from his full-time job. And at 7.25 a.m., I'm on with the payroll trying to make sure that it's not just in authorization status so that it's clear Mm -hmm. so we could pay our employees out of his paycheck because the company itself wasn't bringing in enough money. There were so many things that were in my face saying, no, wrong way. This is, this is your warning sign. Don't just yield. (laughs) Right. And I was like, I was doing what we call a Philly stop, going slow and down just enough, but you keep going. Uh It's like what we had the California roll, similar thing. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was doing it through all of the signs that I was getting, that I was headed in the wrong direction because I was in a fight for my life. I was in a fight for the business. I was in a fight for the validation that I felt I needed. And all of that was driven by inner child issues mm. that weren't mm-hmm. healed. And I had done three plus years of therapy prior to that. I had, in my mind, I worked through 
all of this nonsense. But entrepreneurship, as I'm sure you can attest to, when you are doing something on your own name, there is nothing more exposing than that. It exposes flaws you didn't know you had, confidence issues that you didn't think would ever be associated with your name. All of that stuff was coming up for me. And that made me seek more help because I realized as dope and as amazing and all the things as I am, I'm doper when I'm supported, when Mm -hmm. I'm not doing this alone, when I'm not feeling like I have to ask myself the same questions over and over again, because clearly I'm going to only give myself so many different answers, right? Like you need some, some guidance out of that. And I had to cough up money that I didn't feel like we had. And we're bootstrapped employees, employees, you hear me, entrepreneurs. We don't have loans from anywhere or any of that. So this was really like, how much is going in? What can we put aside? Where, Where can we maneuver the 401k portfolio, which was damn near stripped you know, with mm-hmm. everything else that was going on. And it really was a walk of faith mixed with strategy and having guidance from people who had already been where we were to help us pull through versus me circling up because I made that mistake too. I circled up with some people who were in the similar positions, maybe different industries, but that similar energy of like, oh, this sucks. All oh, this is wrong. This mm-hmm. is so hard. And that energy what it made me feel comforted, like eating chocolate at three o'clock in the morning, right? Like it was comforting, but it wasn't helpful. And in fact, it was the opposite. It was bringing my normal, natural, optimistic energy, high Mm -hmm. vibe energy down lower and lower and lower. And that was showing up in how I showed up. It was showing up in the programs that I created. It was showing up in the people that I attracted good people, but not my people, but I was attracting them because the energy that I was surrounding myself with and those accountability partners. And, you know, I call them pro friends where they're like your professional friends, but you know, you're riding out because you have the same entrepreneurial pain and -hmm. all of that. I realized that I was really playing small for so many reasons. And one of the main reasons is I was afraid of success, Mm -hmm. which which is what it came down to. Yeah. And that I completely understand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you get, especially when you deal with inner child stuff and whatever, you start to realize like how you'll sabotage yourself to satisfy a part of your ego that you don't even know is damaged. You know? Mm. Yes, honey. Queen of sabotage right here. And it was a, an interesting dichotomy of sorts because on paper and for anyone mm-hmm. who was arm's length away from me. It's like, oh my God, Nikita's so amazing. She's like, how do you have all the energy all the time? You have this family, you have the kids, blah, 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 blah. Like all of the things. Yeah. And on the on the other side of it, I'm like, I am just trying to get two strands of hair together to comb over to make it look like I have more hair than I do. Right? <laughs> like that's how it was feeling like with yeah, everything. Yeah. Like I'm just trying to make this work. And at the same time, I think the reaction that I would get from people in our earlier years of being like transitioning from working in systems to being a full-time entrepreneur, I think the energy that I got from people was about how authentic and honest they felt Mm -hmm. like I was. And I'm like, well, yeah, if you ask me a question, Robbie, I'm absolutely going to answer it. Like I would never Mm -hmm. lie. I'm not going to, you know, spin something to make it sound better. But for whatever reason, people were asking me just the questions that pulled out the best in me. 
they weren't necessarily asking me those behind the curtain questions until I got into other circles. Mm -hmm. When I started putting myself in rooms where I was by far not the most successful, not the most intelligent, and didn't even come close to the numbers of of alphabet soup that some of these other (laughs) people had done before they were 15, right? Like Mm -hmm. when I started putting myself in like the super, super nerdy rooms, and I consider myself a nerd too, but I didn't have anything on these people. Everything changed. I was being challenged and stretched and humbled, quite frankly, in ways that I couldn't imagine. And that was where the real polishing began for me. And I also wasn't going to just take, I was going to reciprocate as well, because I always stood in, I have a lot of value. My challenge was always packaging the value so that Mm -hmm. people could digest it in small nuggets, because it can get real deep, real fast. If we go into like, when you were five, right? Like, (laughs) really, really far, it could, you know, it could throw somebody off. And so I had to be in rooms where people had the same issue that I had, but they had found a way to deal with it. They didn't Mm -hmm. have to apologize for how much they knew, whether again, whether they did the, you know, formal traditional school route or not, not didn't matter. It could have been, they just had a lot more life experience than I had in business or in any particular other area that I was interested in. And me being really open to not only receiving from them, but still standing firm that I have something to give. That really was honestly what I would say made the shift for me the most to to mm-hmm. go from just struggling and trying to survive in this thing we call entrepreneurship into be being really in a space where I feel really good about what we're doing. Yeah. No, that's great. And then when you look at the family angle and like your purpose to help families, then you had your own family that was kind of in its own crisis. Like, did you, did you just see yourself able to better handle like resolving that as you were starting to shift in like your work and where you were going with that? Oh, definitely. So I went from, so, you know, it's kind of like <laughs> a horrible stereotypes that we have for teachers and social workers, right? You don't make enough money. You do all the heavy lifting. Most people would never want to trade positions with you, right? Like they're super honest about like, Ooh, y'all got that, right? I yeah. don't want it. Y'all got it. And oh, what a shame that you also don't make enough money to actually enjoy (laughs) anything in your life without you having to, you know, constantly look for bargain deals and and be really, really creative. Obviously now it's a little bit easier to do it because there's this whole online market that we didn't have access to in the same way 30 years ago. Back then you didn't have to you know, feel like you were completely out of alignment because people just expect it. Like, oh, poor social worker, right? Like they just kind of like no one thought that you should be on a pedestal other than the the one of like, oh, I'm so grateful for, you know, you showing up in the dark alley Mm -hmm. with me at three in the morning. Once I realized that that wasn't enough for me and I was being exposed, all of my nerves were being exposed to the pain of my actual life Mm -hmm. and what was out of sync and out of alignment. When I started doing my own personal growth work, beyond therapy, like therapy is very important and is definitely Mm -hmm. still something that I highly recommend. I don't think you should ever go to a therapist who doesn't have a therapist, right? Like this is like (laughs) super important for all of us, for our mental health and well-being. You don't have to be in crisis or have a diagnosis for it. It's just for support. I stand in that really strong, but therapy isn't the only type of support. 
And mm-hmm. as a therapist, being able to recognize that for myself and admit that to myself and not feel shame for my community because I am an African-American woman and Mm -hmm. therapy is not our thing traditionally. Mm -hmm. It's not what we do. And there's all kinds of labels and, you know, inner city, inner circle labels that are put Mm -hmm. on you for doing that. I had to be willing to not just think outside of the box of how I was going to do it and not be shamed about it. I had to break the box, like just break it and deal with whatever would come my way and be okay with that awareness that you're going to have cousins that you love, siblings that you cherish. You might even be in a relationship with someone who really is like not supportive of your personal growth walk. And you have to be in a space where you're not going to do it and be in a like, oh, well, I'm so much better than you guys because I'm doing this and you're not. But do it. Do it for you where you can learn and grow and eventually model what you hope that they'll start to attach themselves to and do their own work. So for me, it was really a fine line of doing that so that my husband would start to see things different than me. My my kids will definitely, you know, kids are ruthless. They will call you on something. The one time that I said, damn, and I hadn't said damn in five years, I'd be like, oh, mommy, Carson, you need church, right? Like they will call you out yeah. <laughs> on your stuff in 2.2 seconds. The, all of those things though made me feel good because I saw that they were seeing the improvement. And that Mm -hmm. made me want to do more, even though they played me, right? They made fun of me. They called it corny, you know, all of that. But they also started becoming into this place where they could appreciate it. And that made me reminded of how much work, not only that I still had to do, but how grateful I was that I was willing to do the work in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like looking at my kids and they're out of their circle of friends. They're the ones that people go to in their peer circles to say, well, I need help with this. I need Mm -hmm. support with that. I'm like, yeah, you you know you like that because of your mama and your daddy, right? Because <laughs> of yeah, the personal growth work. Exactly. Because yeah. of the work we're doing that you made fun of, you know, while you were growing up. Mm-hmm. But I really do. I know that the work that I did for myself helped my family in a very direct, specific way. And it absolutely helped my business in a very direct and specific way as well. Yeah. So thinking about the... I guess all of that and all you learned. One thing you've talked about is just like the way you help people is really like you look at people in relationships and help them with the personal and the professional aspects of that. And so how do you navigate that with them? I mean, do they come to you for a certain thing or can it just be all over the place? Yeah. So we differentiate for our power couples. So we work with both the power couples as a couple as mm-hmm. well as just the married woman entrepreneur. And we, right. we do it in kind of s- separate ways. So if you're a power couple that just found me, maybe they heard this awesome podcast at More Than Work with Robbie Kong, you know, whatever. However, yeah. um, <laughs> dropping <laughs> some seeds. Like maybe they found me here. Maybe they mentioned something to someone in a, uh, an intermixed circle that we happen to be in. Mm-hmm. When power couples come, they are usually coming for the ones that we accept into our program because it's a nine-month program. The power couples that come to us are happy on paper. Mm -hmm. They look really, you know, you'll see the pattern here. They look really similar to how my husband and I used to look. You know, we had the picket fence and the dog and the 2.5 kids and all the things. And we were trying to put two strands of hair together and comb it over, right? (laughs) So they typically look like that where, you know, financially, they are in a much better position than we were in back then. 
but they're, you know, growing, at least one of them has to be an entrepreneur and they are growing these wildly successful careers and businesses and they weren't able to prioritize their family during the growth of that. So their growing pain isn't just about building teams and new products and new services. Their growth pain is how do we enjoy the money, the resources, the flexibility that we work so hard to, how do we now enjoy it together before our kids, if we happen to have some, because it's not a requirement, before our kids are grown and out of the house and we're looking at each other, trying to figure out why we're together in the first place. How do we turn up the fire in our bedroom, most of the couples that come to us aren't having sex consistently mm-hmm. once a week. And that is a big no-no for me, unless there is a medical reason, which we can you know, coach you through there too, because that's the benefit of all these resources up here. But you know, unless there's a yeah. medical reason, there's no reason that you shouldn't be having sex at least two to three times a week. So usually husbands hear that and are like, whoa, where do I sign up? And wives are like, stop telling him truths. Don't let him know that, right? (laughs) I don't need him to know anything until I get them to a place where her orgasms are so incredible that she's like, where do I sign up for round two, right? So they're typically coming to us because there's a decrease in emotional intimacy that is clearly showing up in their physical intimacy. Sometimes there's some communication issues around money and some of the other just kind of normal marital challenges. None of our power couples are knocking on the door of divorce. If someone is knocking on the door of divorce and they're two seconds from strangling each other, I will refer them to someone who's in my network that specializes in whatever that foundational issue is. We want couples who are happy, wanting to be happier. They have full lives, but now they want to enjoy them fully. Like those Mm -hmm. are really the couples that we're calling for that still go on vacation together. They just don't really know what to do with each other while they're on vacation, right? They're just like, oh yeah, we booked the time. We had sex a couple of times. Okay, that's it. Like, what do we do? And we're waiting till dinner time so they can be together again. The married women entrepreneurs, we serve them in a incubator that I call the Unbound Brilliance Lab. I work with them specifically in the community because we leverage the community of sisterhood that comes. They have all different backgrounds. Many of them speak multiple languages. They're from all over the world. And we have them in small cohorts to build that community that you feel like you're missing a lot Mm -hmm. of the times. You might even a loss because of your marriage, because it only became about you two and all of your sister friends kind of just dissipated with life and time, you know, barring an incident. We're giving them that community again, and I'm teaching them very similar tools to what the power couples are getting when we work on a one-on-two exclusively, but we're doing it in a community way so they can really see that they're not alone. We can diminish, if not eliminate, the imposter syndrome that comes up because you're in a cohort of other women who are very different than you, but they align in the energy of the problem. Mm -hmm. together. You know that you're not alone, that you're not the only crazy one dealing with this man, you know, that is having these issues or whoever your lover is. We just call your spouse your forever love. So when we work with those married women, they typically are coming because usually the spouse isn't quite ready to do the couple's work yet. Mm -hmm. Like bunk him, bunk her. I want to work on me. So how, where can I do that? And that's really what we're doing in the incubator with the couples. We do separate them. It's one session of couple work to two sessions of individual work because mm-hmm. the real progress is going to be what I do with you by yourself and then bring you together to test those things out and see how it's working. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And I think just people end up with like 
different sleeping patterns. Like a lot of times what I've noticed actually just with like a couple friends I have, I'm not a couple, I'm not in a couple. So I don't mm-hmm. have the, these same issues. I think that has to be really hard just to balance all that, you know? It is. You become two ships passing each other in the night. And when you are docked at the same port, you're roommates. You're yeah. not lovers, you're roommates. You handle the business of the house or the kids or your elder parents or whatever the situation is. You definitely come together for crises, right? Because mm-hmm. roommates are not going to let anybody break into the house. So even if you're not liking each other at the time, somebody <laughs> you're trying to break through your door, roommates band together, right? Like you're gonna be like, oh, you're not getting in here. And a lot of the couples do the same thing. The work intimacy, the crisis intimacy, the conflict intimacy, which are all elements of like it's 12 different types of intimacy. But those are three major types. And when the couples have those aspects of intimacy, they think everything is good. Like, no, because you go to a fight together, which is fantastic. I'm glad to know that you're standing up each other. Right. But that doesn't mean that you play well together. Or that you communicate well together. Like these are other parts of intimacy that are really important. Aesthetic intimacy is when you can create beautiful things and shared experiences together. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with physical uh, touch, right? It could just mm-hmm. be that you go into nature together and you both acknowledge the beauty and feel rooted and kick off your shoes and feel the dirt and could just enjoy that moment as an example, of aesthetic yeah. intimacy. And that is often everything that you describe that passing ships and the, the roommate-ish feeling that a lot of couples have, that's what a lot of our couples are coming and presenting with as well. Because they're saying, you know, again, we take the pictures for Instagram, we hold hands, we go on the vacations, we handle the business of the house, we do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But the, the passion is so dim compared to what it could be. And right. that goes for even we we do we've had a couple come couples come to us. It's like actually the sex is fantastic. We don't have any issues with that. We just we don't do it frequently enough. And you know, the communication and the normal emotional intimacy yeah. is super, super low. And that's what I'm missing. And when we go and we explore further, we found that there was at least one partner, if not both of them, were connecting in body trauma. Mm. So sex was a physical escape for both of them, which is why they felt like it was so uber juicy good. But it was really about the physical connection only. And there was nothing else there. Once we were able to separate the couple and really go in and they were able to make love to each other without it being about body trauma, they were blowing each other's mind because now they could be free. And it wasn't just about, quote unquote, getting off. You know what I mean? It was really an enjoyable experience. So a lot of it, too, is is helping them recalibrate the power dynamic that may have gotten shifted Mm -hmm. over the course of their relationship. That all makes sense. And then just getting back to like the whole thing of you being addicted to stress and how you saw stress manifest itself in your life. And then at some point it became more than you could bear. I mean, really, I don't, I don't want to extend the metaphor too much just because it becomes dark, but just the whole thing of like too much stress led to, exacerbation of medical issues. I know I have an issue as well that if I get Mm -hmm. too stressed and too tired, it definitely gets exacerbated and to the point it's dangerous. How did you kind of reconcile the stress management? And do you see that as something you have to do with your clients as well? Oh, absolutely. I actually, for 
backing going backwards a little bit for all of our programs, whether you're in a exclusive elite power couple program where I work specifically with you and your spouse one on two, or you're in a maybe a larger incubator, which is still an intimate experience with us, but you're in a you're in a shared space. All of our programs are closed the fourth week. And if there happens to be a fifth week of the month, every fourth week of every single month for all the calendar months that just have four weeks, there is nothing planned for you except intimacy infusion. We literally call it your prescription for permission to pause. And in order to successfully graduate from our programs, you have to take your prescription and use it. You have to schedule that time. As we say, me time before we time, even for our couples. I'm not worried about boo loving. I'm worried about what are you doing for yourself, for your self-love and your self-care? Because it's not Mm -hmm. just self-care is really about the doing, you know, getting your mani-pedi, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. your massage. Self-love is the being, being able to be with yourself without having to write a whole novel in your head because you can't turn your mind off. You know, all the things that we deal with. And there's a lot of practice and a lot of tools that I'm equipping the the couples and the married women entrepreneurs with to be able to successfully do that. But I built it in because these are powerful individuals that absolutely don't know how to slow down. <laughs> that is mm-hmm. not something that is normal for them. So they that is yeah. that is definitely something they have to be taught. And I'm the first partaker of that le- lesson. I wasn't taught how to slow down either. I didn't come from a family of entrepreneurs. I came from a very dysfunctional family of hustlers. They mm-hmm. all worked extremely hard. Having multiple jobs was no different for me growing up and for what I saw than someone who has cereal on their cabinet every day, mm-hmm. right? That was just par for the course. And in fact, if you didn't have cereal, cereal in your cabinet, your new things was really, really bad. If you didn't have at least three jobs or someone in, in the house didn't have at least three jobs, your new things was really, really, really bad. So just being aware of that was really helpful to be completely transparent. Making the shifts of understanding, well, this stress is creating so much stuff and all the, the drama that's in your life. What are you going to do about it now? Even with the coaches and the mentors and the spiritual advisors and the therapy and the hodgepodge of support, the work still comes down to me doing it. Mm-hmm. It still came back to me executing on those things that I quote unquote know, but wasn't actually embodying and living. So now, you know, we joke, we're a very silly, sarcastic household. So we joke all the time, like I am such a bad behind, you know, I use other words, but I am <laughs> such a bad behind and so ridiculously feisty that my body beats me up because it's the only one that can beat me up unless I keep it in check. So mm-hmm. how I do that is by managing my stress. If I don't manage my stress, it is not, you know, some people get a headache. Some people need to go take a nap. Some people just have a, a bad day and they're really moody. I could end up in the hospital. And I mm-hmm. know that that's very significant for me. And it sounds like it's similar for you mm-hmm. for, for perhaps different reasons, but similar foundational issues that are going on. I don't play with it. So, you know, I feel like because I'm the kid that, touches the the stove until I actually get burned enough where yeah. I felt the heat. I feel like the God that I serve gave me a stove that was too hot for me to touch. And it's my body. Like, listen, you, oh, you wasn't going to listen when I told you to calm down, sit down, slow down, relax <laughs> yeah, yourself, yeah. Nikita. <laughs> you didn't want to do that, boo. Okay. Let me help you. Bing bong. 
ex, you know, exacerbate that off, you know, automation issue that you're having in your body. And we're going to call it something rare, right? Like, <laughs> and it's automated enough to kick in when I'm stressed, you know, and that includes good stress. So it sounds mm-hmm. silly, but even with really, really good stress from like a good proposal or an opportunity to speak on a stage for 5,000 people, whatever it is that might be good, it's still stress. So I still mm-hmm. have to keep it in check. And be mindful of the energy that I'm putting towards it when I'm, you know, people say, oh, I'm just so nervous. Like, I got to be mindful about how nervous I'm allowed to get. Because it could still give me the same exacerbation as something that I'm afraid of. So I really do have to create the balance of that energy, pun intended, as a balance and relationship advisor. I do have to create balance in every area of my life. I guess it probably makes it easier for you to be authentic by living in the way that you're telling other people. I mean, I can imagine it'd be really hard to be like an imposter in your field. <laughs> Listen, Rabia, I tell people are always like, Nikita, you're the number one balance and relationship advisor in the world. That's so awesome. I'm like, yeah, you know why? Cause I earned that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I'm not that because of a book or a degree or a certification and all of those things are in the, the toolbox too. And I'm very thankful for it, but it's because that is what keeps me up at night is making sure that I have new creative ways to handle all the crap that comes my way too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, storms and hurricanes and tornadoes don't stop coming to people after you reached a certain level in your career. Mm -hmm. In fact, they might come more. They come in a different way. And I'm always careful because I don't want someone who's not at this place in their business yet to feel like, oh, well, you know, you have good problems. And I do. I definitely have good problems. And I'm so grateful for the good problems. But it doesn't take away from the fact that they're still a problem. Mm -hmm. And I still have to be open and resourceful and creative enough to handle it. It's just that in my line of work, I'm also handling it for me. And I'm looking at, well, how can I systematize this so other people can use this you know, mm-hmm. solution that I just created for myself, for my family, for our dynamic. How can I make sure that I can serve other people with it as well if the problem or similar problem arises for them? Where yeah. other people might just apply the solution just so they can get through it and go on to something else because right. it's not their area of expertise. Yeah. And speaking of, you mentioned your book. I wanted to talk to you about your book. So it's selfish, right? Is yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what? what's the book and people can find it on Amazon. I know for sure. Yeah. I'm grateful to say we're at 400,000 locations online worldwide. So you can go just about anywhere for it. Amazon seems to be people's and Barnes and Nobles, their favorite place to go these days. For me, when I wrote it, it took me eight and a half years to write it. It's not a business book. It is not a how-to book. It is literally my survivor memoir and personal transformation story laid out like a blood sport in 209 pages. I take you through the inner child scripts that were created for me throughout my early years, through the early years of trauma, when all of those not so great moments were happening that created narratives for me that I would start to live into as a teenager, a young adult who became a parent really early, a young wife very early through all the years of my marriage and everything up until Roughly, I think I the book ends probably around 2018-ish mm-hmm. when I was like kind of finished writing, writing it. And then everything else was just the editing proofing process. 
the word selfish came to me. It downloaded in my spirit when I was kind of looking for like, what am I going to call this book before I started writing it, knowing I needed to write it. I didn't realize that I was going to have to live it out. I Mm -hmm. redefined the word selfish as a personal, intimate gift to create your joy. And I wasn't in a space where I had earned the right to really, truly write that book yet because I hadn't lived out the new definition. I wasn't allowing personal, intimate spaces of time. That's your selfish time when you're intentionally Mm -hmm. selfish. I wasn't allowing that space for me to grow. I wasn't allowing that space for me to be grateful and to imagine who I wanted to be and to forgive myself and take action. So I couldn't finish the book and publish the book until I had really gone through the full process of what I'm encouraging other people to do. If you want to find hope and victory on the other side, be selfish. And the subtitle of the book is Permission to Pause, Live, Love and Laugh Your Way to Joy, because I do believe if you're selfish, you're able to do just that. You can pause, live, love, and laugh your way to joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Selfish isn't always a bad thing. Mm -mm. People, even with self-care sometimes, because someone, because for someone like for me, self-care is like riding my bicycle basically. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Or going to a concert. Mm -hmm. But for another woman, it might be going to get a massage or going to get nails done. And then it becomes some, at some point people will say, Oh, you know, make fun of self-care first of all, but then it's like, oh, it's just a vanity thing or whatever. But no, but maybe sitting there in that chair relaxes you. Maybe me jumping up and down at a concert also relaxes me somehow. And so it's just, but they're both in a way selfish because I could be doing something else, I suppose. So that's, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. No, it's actually, and I'll give a quick, quick history lesson for anyone who's listening. Like, I don't care what she says. I'm still not going to call that selfish. Self-care isn't selfish. Yes, it is. (laughs) To everyone who's listening, yes, it is. And here's why. The original definition for selfish is all about you not doing for others and you choosing yourself, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, whatever version of the dictionary you're reading, that's that's what it actually is, is you're not doing something for someone else. Mm -hmm. So the super history of that is in the early 1600s when this word was put into the lexicon as we know it, it was put there by a religious person who was a white male, because those were the only people who were able to give dictations at that time. I forget his name on purpose, but he was either <laughs> Pentecostal or Catholic. I know I'm like, I don't want to give anybody extra, any, any extra kudos, Pentecostal or Catholic, because the, the history kind of changes based on whether you're reading the Hebrew or the Greek text of mm. it. Women were coming to this religious official, this priest of sorts, asking for permission to tell their husbands no when they were being forced to have sex when they didn't want to. Uh, Because you know that's your duty. In the 1600s especially, you are chattel, you are property. So you do what they say. And the only two reasons that you can say no is if you are dirty because you're on your menses, right? During that time period. Or if you are physically pushing a child out of your vagina. Right. Those were the only two exceptions to the rule of husbands not being able to touch you but you just not wanting to be touched, your libido being low, you going through menopause, you just not being in a mood were unacceptable reasons. And they were asking for some leeway with that. So the priest, minister, whatever you want to call him said, if you do not concede to the wishes of your husband, you are being selfish. And now it's in the dictionary. So Mm -hmm. we in the 21st century have been going along with this word that was meant to hold women hostage (laughs) to the circumstances of, before there was even a freaking certificate 
to bind them, right? Like this is yeah. what was happening. And we're leaning into that to keep each other small and to make each other feel like we're horrible sisters, friends, parents, lovers, because we choose ourselves for a moment. Yeah. Because we say, wait a minute, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I need to fill myself up. Before I can pour into you, before I can continue breastfeeding you and nurturing you in all the mm-hmm. ways that you want me to, and you is your lover, your kids, your mama, your daddy, your siblings, your nieces and nephews, your team, you is anyone who is benefiting from everything that you're pouring out, but isn't actually able to give to you in the same way that you can give yourself. So mm-hmm. you have to stop breastfeeding the world long enough for you to fill yourself back up and for your body to reheal itself. And I mean that figuratively and literal. And the only way you can do that is if you go by the old school definition and you stop doing everything for everyone else. That is the only way you can do it. So yes, self-care is selfish. Self-love is selfish. Taking a moment to pause and breathe and pee by yourself. All of it is selfish and that is okay. And Mm -hmm. that's really... The, the game that I'm playing these days is I want people to understand you should embody the thing that is serving you and mm-hmm. let go of anything that isn't. If being selfish is serving you so you can heal and fuel and create your joy and then pour out and from ample overflow, then that's exactly what you should do. Yeah. And then what about your podcast? Because you have a podcast that's pretty fun to listen to. <sighs> Thank you, Rabia. You're so <laughs> sweet. Uh, Balance Bully Podcast for ambitious women in business and a few brave men. Uh, we started it back in the end of 2016. I've been podcasting since 2012, but this rendition of the podcast uh, was December 5th, my daughter's birthday, 2016. Nice. And it's really a space for our work, life, and love journey. It's really for our experts to come and share, like, how are you creating that work life and love balance for yourself? What does that look like? What does it look like for your business? Many of the experts like yourself that will Mm -hmm. come on the show will share why they are doing the things that they're doing as a way to create more space for themselves so they can show up more fully behind the curtain in their life. So they're working very different than say when they were in their early, you know, teens and twenties and maybe even thirties. So I'm excited to share those stories and bring in experts that are willing to be vulnerable and honest and talk about everything literally from the bedroom to the boardroom. Mm -hmm. It's organic, just like your show. It's no scripted questions except for one towards the end. And I, I really enjoy them coming and sharing their truth with us. And the Balance Bully podcast is probably one of my favorite platforms to play on in terms of all the things that we do yeah. inside our business. Yeah. I mean, the people's stories, I just, I've always been pretty passionate about, and it's nice to be able to facilitate those conversations with someone, you know? So I, Absolutely. I agree. Well, it'll be linked in the show notes. So, so before we get to my last set of questions, the fun five, you've said a lot and you've given a lot of like, advice almost inadvertently because you haven't said directly people do this but if people are listening they know to do this (laughs) but do you have any yeah exactly (laughs) do you have like any advice or mantra that you want to share just like a snippet that you like to follow Hmm. yeah I mean honestly my mantra these days most people say they think it's balanced boldly because of the podcast and like they (laughs) see that everywhere and I, I do subscribe to balancing your life in a bold way but honestly my my self mantra, if you will, has been live fully. 
Mm-hmm. I want people to fully live the lives that they are teaching and preaching and selling other people. And if that's not what you want to do, then consider pivoting. Maybe there's something else that you're also just as, if not better at than where you were before when you were mm-hmm. teaching and preaching and you served well because you're good at it. Because I think that's all the issue that comes up for a lot of us really amazing people. We're just so good at so many things and it's hard to choose. I say you work with what's like coming up for you in a a space of passion, but don't be afraid to let it go. Because I feel Mm -hmm. like passion is really just like, you can see me, but I know you guys listening to me can't. It's like, what are those things called where you chip away at the stone? What is that? Like a a pick? I mean, it's like a pick. Like, it's like not, a chisel, I think. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chisel. Yeah, like yeah, a chisel. You're right. It's yeah. like your passion. Every time you play with one of your passions, I feel it's like you're chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at all the calcified chaos and confusion, frustration, rage, shame, guilt, anger, all the emotions that have literally calcified over top of your purpose. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage people play with your passions. It's chipping away. It's getting below all the crap that other people have put on you. Like they literally put it in your backpack. You know, no blaming, no like, oh, my mama, my daddy. There's so many fingers that we could all point everywhere, but it's not helping. So let's just chip away with your passion. And when you're finished with one, be okay with pivoting to another. It's just getting you closer to your purpose. Yeah. Cool. Great. So then here's the fun five. What's the oldest t-shirt or shirt you have and still wear that you just love the oldest one that i have Woo! my husband would be mad at this because he does the laundry the oldest t-shirt i probably still have is awesome it's literally I'm, i know you guys think i'm just saying that word for the 20th time it really says awesome but it's an acronym <laughs> for um, my husband created it for me almost 10 years ago and it stands for amazing woman encouraging someone other than myself to elevate oh nice that's Thank cool you. It's literally the essence of my purpose. It's why yeah. why I'm here on this earth. I've had it for 10 years at this point because most stuff he throws away when it gets too old and raggedy, yeah. he throws it away. And it's one of my favorites, mainly because he made it for me. Oh, that's great. I like that. That's cool. So in the last year or so, it seemed like Groundhog's Day a lot. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. So, okay, we're on that page. So if if there was a song that you had to have your alarm clock play every morning, if it was really Groundhog's Day, what song would it be? Mm. I'm going to say, so Vivian Green is one of my favorite artists ever in the world. And she has a new song on her album that was just released at the end of 20, what's this, 2021? At the end of 2020, mm-hmm. I know. I was like, what, what's <laughs> today's knows? date? I don't know. <laughs> her album, Love Absolute, and the whole album is fire, but there is a song where she's basically saying like, you better know who you are and walk like you have a purpose in this place. Like, I think it's called The Walkout. And it's like one of my favorites. It's just, I could hear it over and over and over again. It's like, ooh, it, it makes cool. me so excited. All right, good. Walk in your purpose, girl. Do your thing. That sounds like a good sentiment to wake up to. So that's great. (laughs) All right. Coffee or tea or neither? Tea, 100%. Well, 99% because I do have coffee right now with you. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm I'm definitely a tea girl all day. So any favorite tea that you 
like the most? Yeah, or? I'm a chai girl. I, okay, I love yeah. specifically vanilla chai. I'm very, okay. very serious about chai, but I really love black teas uh, and and some greens. I'm not a fan of white teas. Yeah, it's they're always a bit kind of fruity yeah. or floral. Yeah, I yeah. get it. I feel like I can taste the artificial color they're putting in it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So can you think of a time you laughed so hard you couldn't stop or something that just kind of makes you just crack up that, that when you think of it? You're going to think the worst of me right now. And I'm totally okay with that. But my, I'm very horrible person. I like <laughs> to watch babies fall. I know that that is so horrible. But I love like when we watch those little videos and like the baby like ran into the wall and fell or, you know, tripped over the dog or something, you know, of course that they're not hurt. Obviously, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I laugh so ridiculously hard when I see babies fall. <laughs> well, it's they always look shocked. They're always shocked. <laughs> and then they get up and do it again. And you're like, yeah, they no, do. no, I, it's not that. no, that's all right. That's all right. I think it's, I mean, it's pretty funny. So, all right. And the last one, who inspires you right now? Right now is the same person who's been inspiring me for almost 30 years. My mom in love, she has been way before my husband and I have been friends since 13, but she's been a parental figure for me that entire time. Well, before we started dating mm. and got into lustful things and eventually wifed him, you know, he wifed me up and so forth. She is the most brilliant woman on this planet. I've never mm. met anyone more brilliant, more humble, more beautiful in spirit than her. And I say that in comparison to every human that I've ever met, no one has ever come close to my mother in love. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. She's yeah, not, not everyone can say that for sure. <laughs> yeah. I would totally divorce my husband and keep my mother in love. Like I would, like, <laughs> I would totally do that. <laughs> like she's my mom. She's my mom. <laughs> yeah. Y'all, this is what I'm keeping. <laughs> right. Awesome. So I know we'll put up a link to your podcast and your book and, but do you just want, um, to tell people like if they want to look you up, they're excited right now, where should they go? Yeah, I would say the first place to go is thinkpro.com. That's our main website, which if you went right today, you'll see it's under construction, but yeah. you can get all the links to where you want to go. My calendar is there, the Certified Selfish Facebook group, which is free and open to the public. That's there as well. I think the only thing that's not there is the Balance Boldly podcast, but you can still get access to those places. So I would say go there, bookmark it, and come back as you need to. <laughs> awesome. Well, Nikita, it was a lot of fun chatting with you and really insightful. So thanks for being so open and sharing with me. No, this was an honor. I had a great time, just like I expected. Thanks for your patience. You guys don't know, Rabia has been waiting for me to get my <laughs> schedule together so we could have this time to be fully present with each other. And I'm really, really glad that the stars aligned for us because this was dope. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about the guest in the show notes and at RabiaSaid.com. Joe Mafia created the music just for this podcast. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. And Rob Metke is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let me know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work. Follow at More Than Work Pod or send a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Or visit our website, morethanworkpod.com. Give us a follow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review if you like. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. While being kind to others, 
Don't forget to be kind to yourself. Thank you.